And I said, uh, well, what do you do with somebody who lacks joy in life? And he says, good question. <laughs> he says, I don't know. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, I guess I'll go read about it. So I, I went to the research literature. I went, Psych info is what psychologists tend to look at or index. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing like almost zero mm. research on joy. So I thought, well, there you go. There's my dissertation topic. Three, two, one. Another Nerding Out with That Nerdy Catholic. I am Seth Payne, That Nerdy Catholic, and we're joined today with Brent Robbins, and uh, we're just going to jump right into it. So, Brent, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, where do you work, and, and what do you do there? Yeah, I am a psychology professor. I'm a professor at Point Park University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I've been at Point Park University for 15 years, and I teach a variety of courses. We have a doctoral program in clinical psychology. We have a doctoral program in critical psychology. We have a master's program in community psychology and undergraduate programs with concentrations, uh, including a concentration in religion and spirituality. And uh, I teach in pre all of those programs off and on, uh, mostly in the uh, doctoral programs. And uh, I have a book, uh, The Medicalized Body and Anesthetic Culture, that came out in 2018. And uh, a lot of my research has been on emotion and the psychology of happiness and joy and virtue, but also some painful emotions too. And I'm also uh, interested in studies of the mind-body relationship. Uh, and emotion is a really good thing to study if you want to understand the mind-body relationship. So those are uh, a little bit about me. And then, uh, you know, I've been, I was, uh, I was a Catholic uh, as a, as a child raised as a Catholic. When I went to college, like a lot of people, I drifted away from my faith and really started to question my faith and really began to espouse uh, an atheism. Sort of a, it's it, depending on how you define atheism, ag agnosticism, some people might refer to it as agnosticism in the sense that I was still holding out hope uh, in God, but, you know, was, had, had all but sort of given up on that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and then there was a, sh there was a gradual change in terms of, that I think was partly intellectual in that I started to see some evidence pointing towards the importance of faith for people's lives. I think that was sort of planting some seeds. Mm -hmm. My wife had a conversion experience. She was a Protestant, Presbyterian, converted to Catholicism without, at, at the time that I was an atheist, much to my uh, frustration. And <laughs> I wasn't really thrilled <laughs> about that. Uh, mm -hmm. That was, But then, you know, she started inviting, inviting me to go to mass with her and, uh, I sort of reluctantly started to go at first, wanting to support her. And then gradually that started to uh, have an impact on me. And then all of that sort of culminated in uh, something I've talked about on the journey home, for example, is, is this experience that I had in a cemetery mm -hmm. during a retreat where I had a really a mystical experience of the presence of God and, and very clear, distinct uh, messages from God about where I was going with my life. Uh, 
And that was really powerfully transformative. It was something, it was a direct unmediated kind of experience that I couldn't deny. And then it's, mm -hmm. you know, ever since then, I've been very passionately engaged with the faith and, you know, right. and glad to be home. <laughs> yep. Well, um, I want to I want to talk more about that uh, that experience at that retreat, and then talk about more about coming in to the Catholic Church in a little while. But I want to start off. I want to go back um, to to your experiences growing up um, about getting into psychology. What was uh, what was the thing that kind of sparked your interest in in studying psychology and studying people? Yeah, that's it. You know, what's interesting about that is I didn't start off uh, interested in psychology. I actually started off interested in the study of filmmaking. So I, I went to school and uh, studied film. And then uh, I got a major in media communications with a, with a concentration in filmmaking. And I had a minor in literature and language. So I didn't even have a minor in psychology. I think all that was kind of a good thing because when I went back to get my uh, credits in psychology, I was pretty disappointed to what I found in, in uh, what you might call mainstream psychology. A lot of what I was being taught in my classes, I felt like I learned more about psychology doing filmmaking and uh, in my literature and humanities classes in some ways than I did mm -hmm. in a lot of psychology. But, but so that didn't, a lot of my psychology classes really didn't inspire me to study psychology. It kind of turned me off to it. Weird. Odd. Yeah. But what, th there was one class though, uh, and it was a class where we, it was, it was called Theories of Personality. And it introduced me to Freud, Jung, and existential psychology. And that really piqued my interest. I got really interested in Freud and Jung and you know, and it, it continued to be something that was informing, you know, how I was understanding what I was doing with filmmaking in my life. Uh, but the real turning point for me in terms of getting back into psychology is that I had, I was dating somebody and her father was a manager at a halfway house at a rehabilitation center for people with head injury. <coughs> so, <coughs> excuse me. So I, uh, had the opportunity to work there as an overnight supervisor. So I would come in and make dinner uh, for the people who are in the residential center and would sign people in and out. Everybody would go to bed and then I could do homework uh, you know, and read all night <laughs> while, they, while they were asleep. So it was a pretty good deal. Uh, and then when I graduated, there was an opportunity for me to take over as a program manager of that uh, facility. And uh, because the person who had hired me uh, had was leaving and was going somewhere else. So I accepted that position. And so I was going in every day working with people who are really struggling with, you know, uh, tra head traumas that they had had that were really had transformed their life. And I found that I really enjoyed, I really felt it was a blessing to be able to work with people who are going through a very difficult life transition and that I could be there and offer something to them. Uh, just a caring ear, you know, just a, just an openness to listen to mm -hmm. what they had to say. And I found that that was very meaningful. And so I thought, you know, that's, that might be something I'd like to do for my career instead of filmmaking. And at that point I'd kind of gotten jaded with filmmaking, partly because I realized the lifestyle wasn't a good one because I wanted to be a father. I wanted to have a family. 
And I realized mm -hmm. that going into the filmmaking would be, would require probably a lot of travel and uh, a lot of um, unpredictability. <laughs> you know, it would be a, it would mm -hmm. be a, a, a stressful lifestyle in that regard. So I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but the, the ironically thing was, the, what really convinced me, tipped me over the edge, was going to a movie. I was kind of depressed one day uh, and not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. I had been engaged to someone and that hadn't worked out. I was graduated. I was working at this job, but it wasn't something that I could see myself doing for the rest of my life. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go to a movie just to get out of the house. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what was playing. We didn't have the Internet back then. So I got in my car and I just randomly drove to the theater. And when I got to the theater, everything was playing except uh, one movie, which was Groundhog Day, by, you know, starring Bill Murray. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't want to see a silly comedy. And, and I know Bill Murray a lot of times was in silly comedies. So I was looking for, you know, like a Bergman film, you know, like mm -hmm. something that was kind of dark and dreary and <laughs> full of angst, you know. And uh, but as it turned out, uh, that there was something about Groundhog Day that I found really profoundly moving. It's the this character is very self-absorbed. I can identify with that. I think in some ways I realized I was really always mainly thinking about myself, and that really wasn't making me happy. And that when I was working with people and I felt like I was giving myself to them in some way, that really felt meaningful, and it felt like I felt happy, uh, and that I was doing something worthwhile. And I saw in the sort of narrative arc of Groundhog Day how this very self-centered person uh, goes through a kind of an ego death, you know, where he commits suicide, I don't know, many, many times and lives the same day over and over again. And he can't kill himself. So he decides, well, I might as well live a meaningful life. And he starts experimenting with that. And ultimately where he ends with is doing, really finding meaning and being there for others, right? Being a mm -hmm. gift to others. And I, and I, was very attracted to that. And I walked out of the theater and I said, okay, I'm going to get my doctorate in psychology. And then that was, that kind of set me on, on my way. So it was really a desire for meaning and, and coming mm -hmm. to a recognition in my early twenties that a really meaningful life had something to do with self transcending about being mm -hmm. for others about self giving. So I had that, a real sense of that. And that's uh, that, it, you know, the rest is history, I suppose. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. I went to Duquesne so, University and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so the, uh, you, you're talking about, you know, the focus of the work that you do is on, on emotions. And as we've talked about before, a lot is centered around joy. What, what got you on that track of, of wanting to <coughs> especially focus on, on joy? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it was my first client. Well, I don't think it was my first client, but it was one of my first clients. I was working in the clinic at Duquesne University. And, you know, you see, you do what's called an intake. You know, somebody comes in and you interview them and you find out what's their presenting problem. And so I'm learning how to be a, be a good psychotherapist and very nervous, not really knowing what I'm doing. And you know, having having read quite a bit about things, but knowing things in books and actually doing it are two different things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was maybe the third client I'd ever seen. This young woman, I think she was a, she was a senior at the time. And when I asked her what her presenting problem is, she said, "I don't have any joy in my life." 
So she was presenting her problem as not as depression or anxiety mm. or, you know, any other kind of disorder you could find in DSM, DSM-5. Mm. You know, it was an absence of a quality of life that, that she felt was the problem. And it, she didn't really fit the criteria for depression. You know, she wasn't having suicidal thoughts. She wasn't having insomnia. She wasn't really, you know, thinking morbid thoughts or things like that. She was having some strange dreams. So I went to my supervisor and I said, uh, well, what do you do with somebody who lacks joy in life? And he says, good question. <laughs> he says, I don't know. <laughs> So I said, okay, well, I guess I'll go read about it. So I, I went to the research literature. I went psych info is what psychologists tend to look at or index. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing like almost zero mm -hmm. research on joy. So I thought, well, there you go. There's my dissertation topic. There's no, there's very little research. And I was taking a research methods class and we had an opportunity in that class to do a little, like a pilot study. That was a quali qualitative research. So uh, I did I did the pilot study in the in the in the first time I did the research it was uh, the data was kind of thin it, the the way I did the interviews it didn't yield really good data. Then I started to do a technique where I had people do you know, drawings, abstract drawings using color and form to try to communicate their experience of the emotion. And then that was very generative. That gave me a lot of rich data. And then it would prompt people. Mm. It kind of gave people license to use like metaphor and analogy and things like that to describe their experience. And that was really uh, gave me a wealth of data. So I thought, okay, perfect. So I went on and did my dissertation, defended it. And that was a, a big piece of my dissertation. So that's basically how it got started is there was somebody who came in and said, I need to know you know, how to have more joy. And we didn't really know even what joy was, you know, like, what is mm -hmm. joy? How do you help somebody to have more joy in their life? And so that that's been you know, the beginning of my journey, I guess that would have been like yeah. 1998, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah. um, so what in, in your in all that research, and all that work you were doing, what was, did you come up with a definition of what joy was? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think that the probably the simplest expression of it would be a kind of being fulfilled. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, but it, but it's that's I don't think cap quite captures it. It really involved. I mean, descriptively, it involved. Well, let me let me back up a minute because I want to say mm -hmm. that there's different ways that you can study uh, joy. One way you can study is by looking at it as a state. Like, so it's a, you know, a rather fleeting experience. It comes and goes. Mm -hmm. And then another way you can look at joy is as a mood, which would be a general sort of background mood that might carry with, you might carry with you throughout the day or maybe a week or for a period of time, but it's still more transitory. And then we can talk about dispositional joy or state or trait mm -hmm. joy, which would be more of a personality disposition, a disposition to have experiences of joy more so than others. And then you could also talk about joy as a spiritual fruit, which is uh, which is still another way of conceptualizing joy. So when I started off, I was studying uh, state joy, how people experienced you know these sort of fleeting moments of joy, and then later went on mm -hmm. to study the other uh, dimensions. So when people had 
this momentary experience of joy, they, they it was a really a kind of powerful, energized feeling moving up and out of the body is how people describe it. It was this movement up and out. People would describe it the way I'm doing it with their hands, you know. Uh, they talked about, but even though it was a very powerful experience, there was a kind of sense of peace and security in that mm -hmm. power. Uh, it didn't feel out of control or dangerous. Uh, and along with that, a feeling of connectedness to the world around them and to other people, whether or not those mm -hmm. people were physically present, a sense of connection to others and an altered sense of experience and time. So they tended to, to be focused on a kind of present, but not like you would be stuck in the present, like if you were bored, you know, not knowing what to do. Mm -hmm. It was more like a very pregnant kind of present where people used very mystical language. They talked about having a sense of the eternal, uh, as, mm -hmm. you know, an access to uh, that it felt timeless or beyond time, uh, like mm -hmm. very kind of mystical type of language. And they talked about their experience of space their perception of space as a sort of opening up. Like it felt like that hmm. the aperture of their awareness was kind of opening up. And that's interesting because you think about a lot of negative experiences are sort of closing down of perception. When, mm -hmm. we're ang when we're angry, we tend to focus on the object of our anger and we lose the context. Uh, anxieties like that too and fear tends to mm -hmm. focus our attention. Whereas, uh, you know, positive emotions in general, but joy in particular is just really more of an expansive uh, mm -hmm. experience. So literally people described, they would describe experiences of joy as like, you know, opening onto the blue of the sky, you know, like mm -hmm. in their in their experience like that, that was what they remembered in the experience. It was literally this expanding of their perception and of their horizons. And then they felt mm -hmm. nurtured and they felt like they grew in some way from the experience. Yeah. So well, it, it's it's so it's it's it sounds like this experience of of joy that you're describing is very much uh, transcendent. Yes, right. Yes, and and when you were so and when you were studying, uh, when you were studying and you're working on this, you you weren't at that moment. You were still an atheist, right? That's right. Right. So how did you how did you connect this? <clears throat> what was your <laughs> What was your idea of what the transcendent was? Right. That well, time? that's that's the problem is it was really contrary to what I expected to find in many ways. I, I was really, I was coming from, a, you know, a, a variety of different thinkers, but I was thinking of people like Nietzsche, for example, who mm -hmm. thought that, you know, the sense of, uh, if you think of, you know, the divine as a kind of transcendence or, or, uh, usually people, at least I associated that with sort of the afterlife or with deferring mm -hmm. one's happiness to the future. And so I did expect to have the sense of uh, presence, you know, that people would find joy in the moment and they wouldn't mm -hmm. be deferring that to some later time, you know, maybe afterlife or something like that. So, you know, Nietzsche talked about a kind of Amor fati, you know, a love of fate, you know, finding the joy in the in in the imminent, right, rather than the transcendent. Yeah. So I was, I think, I was sort of informed by that, and uh, also, I'd be, you know, Heidegger, I think, does have a sort of a sense of the transcendent, but in many ways, when you read uh, Heidegger and existential philosophy, it's really very much a philosophy of imminence. It's like we're sort of locked 
within ourselves. You know, Heidegger's being in the world is a very kind of, in, in some ways it has a sense of the transcendent, but really it's not. It's like the world is me and I am the world. I was coming from a place that Charles Taylor, you know, has referred to as a, as the buffered self, you know, I didn't, I wasn't thinking in terms of the transcendent. So when I was finding mm -hmm. that in my data, I found it kind of puzzling, you know, uh, I didn't know how to make sense of that. Right. There were places so, that I turned to, but yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. So, um, so this, this idea, um, the, the, or what you were finding, um, in see people seeking this transcendence or seeing joy in something transcendent bef beyond the right now um what was your what was your idea at that time about about what they were looking for or it, like it, as you say if they were looking for something beyond the here and now and and did you have a concept of of some sort of a religious idea of transcendence in a in a negative light yeah, I think that was part of my agnosticism and atheism is this this sort of assumption that, you know, I think and also there was a kind of, you know, there's something about studying psychology that really they they emphasize, you know, individual, there's an individualism that's sort of latent in a lot of it, you know, that ultimately mm -hmm. people are involved in, I think it's very influenced by utilitarianism because it, it, it comes out of that British empiricist tradition where we sort of calculate what we want to do, you know, uh, but the way, but, but in a very hedonic kind of way, you know, we calculate mm -hmm. whether something is good for us based on whether it's going to make us feel good or whether it's going to make us feel bad. So there's always this sort of reference to ourselves in all of our decision-making. There isn't really a sense of the possibility for an altruism or a being for another in any kind of genuine way. It's all self mm -hmm. self-centered. I think that's also influenced by Darwinism, which of course I was very steeped in Darwinism. Mm -hmm. And you know, and and you know, evolutionary theory is fascinating and extremely informative. Uh, but there's but but it does lack a sense of the transcendent because the idea of the organism is primarily self-serving, right? And mm -hmm. was so I think all of that was informing a lot of the psychology I was studying, whether it was Freud. Mm. You know, who basically everything is ultimately driven by the pleasure principle. It all comes back mm -hmm. to me and what I want and my desires. And everything else is sort of a rationalization or a defense mechanism denying that, you know. Mm -hmm. Or Skinner, uh, B.F. Skinner in behaviorism is, you know, hedonic psychology. That basically all behavior is motivated by what he calls reinforcement, which is really just pleasure and the avoidance of mm -hmm. pain. So everything boils down to that um, and on and on, even, you know, cognitive psychology, even though it brings in higher cognition, it still retains this kind of hedonic psychology. So that was that was a lot of what I was reading, whether it was more psychoanalytic or more experimental behavioral and cognitive psychology or neuroscience, which is very informed by Darwinian evolutionary theory. So I was getting this this sense. Mm -hmm. I was looking for that sort of in the data, but yet people were really, even though they were describing something that was pleasurable, the experience really wasn't a focus on the pleasure. It was really the self-transcending, this moving towards mm -hmm. an other, uh, a little other, you know, other people, and then mm -hmm. really a kind of big other, something you might call divine. I could, you know, mm -hmm. in, in retrospect, especially, I see that in the data. Yeah.
you know. So so then so then as a as a, of a pivot point, you know, you you have an experience of the transcendent. Uh, so so t- just tell me a little bit about this experience that you had at this retreat as this kind of an, a nexus point in your life. Yeah. Um, well, it was it, the, the, what led up to it was, as I said, I was going to mass with my wife. And at that point, I was living mm-hmm. in Buffalo, New York. I was working in a place called Damon College. And I was there for four years before I came to Pittsburgh. And we had been going to a church uh, that was very close to our apartment. And we didn't really feel uh, a real hospitality at that church, especially for children. We had a very young infant. Well, he was maybe a toddler at that point. Mm-hmm. But it's, it was like we would sit down in the church and everybody would kind of, people would move away. You know, it, we didn't feel welcome. We felt like we were a nuisance. So we uh, decided we maybe should find a, a mass that was more family friendly. And so mm-hmm. my wife asked around to some, some folks in her network and they recommended this church, St. Stephen's is the name of the church, which mm-hmm. is on is on an island uh, just north of the city of Buffalo called Grand Island. So we started going there and it was a, it took us like a half hour to get there, but we drove mm-hmm. there and it was a very fr- family friendly mass. It was packed. I mean, mm-hmm. there was tons of people there and then we would show up and the usher, one particular usher, but everybody there, all of the ushers were immensely hospitable. And I felt, you know, there was a sense of like, it wasn't pretense. Like they were really, mm genuinely happy to see you <laughs> and welcoming you there <laughs> you know uh-huh. and that was really that's always a good experience yeah that was a very good experience yeah and then the this the, this usher that would stand he would he would usually stand behind where we sat in the church we would kind of sit in the back of the church and he would always you know make a point to make some gesture to my son dean he would like give mm-hmm. him a give him a nickel or you know i mean like say something <laughs> to him or uh-huh. crack it or say a joke to him and so i felt like he really appreciated that you know we had this child with us and he really made him feel good about coming to mass too and we mm-hmm. felt good that about that as well so one day that guy uh after mass i was walking out and he approached me and said hey you know we're having this retreat mm-hmm. would you like to come and my motivation my first instinct was "Ooh, a retreat no i don't want to do that <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> but I like this guy. I wanted to be mm-hmm. friends with him, you know, because he, yeah. I just saw something in him, you know, uh, that I was like, I'd like to be friends with this person. He seems like a virtuous, good person, you know, uh, and uh, someone who I'd like to have in my life as a friend. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I went to the retreat and it was, uh, it was one of these retreats where you would go once a week. And we would have dinner and then we would usually watch a video and then have a discussion mm-hmm. based on the video. But at the very end, it was a Saturday. We had a whole day concluding event. And part of that included three hours of silence where we were mm-hmm. supposed to pray. And then you had the option of going to confession. They weren't going to you mm-hmm. know, coerce you, but if you wanted to during that mm-hmm. time, you could go to confession. So again, when they told me that, I was like, no way. I'm not going to confession. <laughs> it was like, forget that. I'll go, I'll pray uh-huh. in silence, you know? So I did that and I took like, they handed us some things like some prayers, a couple sheets of mm-hmm. paper with some prayers on it. And I got through those in like, you know, a couple minutes probably. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, now what am I going to do? So I really did sit there 
in silence, really, in a contemplative uh, attitude mm-hmm. in the cemetery in the back of the church. And I honestly thought this is going to be extraordinarily boring. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was like, how am I going to tolerate three hours of this? Mm-hmm. And I had, it was just the, just the opposite. It was anything but boring. I really felt the presence of God breaking through and really communicating to me very distinctly messages, communicating to me Mm -hmm. things that God wanted me to hear. And one of the reasons I knew it was God was because, and not just sort of me talking to myself, is that it Mm -hmm. God was saying things to me that were surprising me, like that I wouldn't Mm -hmm. say to myself. Like he was saying, you're going to go back to Pittsburgh. That was when I was in Buffalo. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm tenure track. There's no jobs in Pittsburgh. You know, my -hmm. wife is never going to do that. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All, so mm-hmm. my, I'm arguing with God, <laughs> saying, no way, that's not going to happen. You know, you don't do that to yourself. You know what I mean? You don't argue with yourself mm-hmm. like that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so it was a real sense of a transcendent voice and that this was God. And that, and also this, the fact that I wasn't bored at all, this three hours went by and I just it went by like so fast. I didn't have a sense of time passing because I was so absorbed. Uh, and and a, really a feeling of peace, too, that came over me that I don't think I'd ever quite experienced before. Uh, a feeling of, uh, you know, just this kind of energy, you know, that came with that presence. Uh, a vibrant energy in the, in, the, in the atmosphere, you know, that was, kept me enraptured. And, uh, yeah, so the other thing was go back and study joy. You know, you, you need to get back to that research on joy. I had drifted away from it. I'd kind of gotten a bit mm-hmm. jaded about it because I didn't know how to make sense of this, this transcendent stuff probably. Yeah. And uh, God was like, you need to go back and do research on that. And the other thing is God said, you should volunteer for hospice. Those were really three clear mm-hmm. messages that I got. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, okay, uh, I, I will do that. Uh, of course, I'm now in Pittsburgh, so you know how that turned mm-hmm. out. <laughs> yeah. So, so then, what happened after that to to get to get you back to Pittsburgh? Literally, the Earth had to move <laughs> for that to mm-hmm. happen. I mean, it was there's so many aspects of that story that I could it would take me probably several <laughs> hours to talk about all uh-huh. the, the amazing things that happened for that to for that yeah. to happen because it seemed like it was impossible but 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 it was but there was a lot of a lot of providence in in those events that brought you back to Pittsburgh right it was it was providence yeah there there was like I'll give you I'll, I'll give you a couple things but one was things mm-hmm. were going very well for me at Damon College mm-hmm. and right after this it was like things started to go wrong there was a lot of turmoil in our department that emerged after that and just a number of things like that, that, that started to make me feel like, okay, maybe I really do need to consider what's out there. And then, uh, I, you know, there, I had looked in Pittsburgh before because I'm, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh and there was mm-hmm. never any jobs that fit my description. When you, mm-hmm. when you apply for jobs in academia, most of the time, you know, they're looking for somebody with a certain specialty, you know, uh, and it's rare that you're going to find a job that's like a perfect fit for you. And mm-hmm. I was definitely kind of a niche person that I didn't know mm-hmm. would appeal to a lot of different positions. So I was very uh, skeptical. And then it turns out mm-hmm. that there were like four or five different positions in Pitts- in the Pittsburgh general Pittsburgh area that all opened up around the same time. 
And then I think ultimately I got three interviews and three offers. Wow. Never happens. Mm -hmm. So I took the best offer, which was at Point Park. So that was wild. (laughs) And then the other (laughs) big thing, but I think maybe the biggest obstacle was my wife did not want to move to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. She was she was uh, very connected. She ha- felt very at home in Buffalo. It reminded her of, of her hometown in, in St. Louis, Missouri, where we met. And she uh, had had made a lot of friends. And Dean had made a lot of friends. Our son, mm-hmm. you know, we were happy. We were and we were happy there. So, but there was a event that you know you might almost seems miraculous, you know, uh, and this, I suppose you could say it was a coincidence, but we came down to Pittsburgh for Christmas because my mother lives here mm-hmm. and she has a house at that time that was vacant and she usually had rented it out, but it wasn't rented. So we stayed there while we, while we came. And when I had been in graduate school, we had actually lived in that house, which is actually the house that I'm in now because we bought it later from my mom. Mm-hmm. But uh, so when we came down to the house, we were walking up the stairs to go in the house. And my wife like went oh, like that, like she was sh- surprised by something. I thought, oh, no, is there, is there you know, some disaster, you know, some natural disaster? Uh, was there a flood or, you know, something in the mm-hmm. basement? Or My mind is thinking of all these bad things. And she's like, there's a holly bush. And I was like, what? 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 <laughs> So, uh, yeah, there's a holly bush. And I was like, what are you talking about, a holly bush? And she says, there's a holly bush. So there, apparently this there, a holly bush had sprouted right next to the porch. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that was a, my, my wife had said when we lived in Pittsburgh that if we had li- continued to live here, she always wanted to plant a holly tree in that mm-hmm. spot. Hmm. So that she took that as a sign that we were to come back to Pittsburgh. Mm. And uh, it's almost like was, the, almost like that scene in uh, in Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street with the cane. Yeah, 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 yeah. It really was. You know, so you could say, well, I mean, you could say it's a coincidence, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I mean, how often do holly trees just spontaneously grow without planting? Them? Right. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but and, and, in the exact and spot, in spot, yeah, <laughs> where the person right. wanted them to be planted. Uh, I, it had yeah. no significance to me. I'd have been like, oh, there's a holly bush there. You know, I mean, yeah. it would have been, had no significance to me. But yeah. it was just what she needed to feel like, okay, I can move to Pittsburgh. Well, once she gave me license, then I sent out applications. And then I thought, well, nothing will come of that. You know, I'll send out applications and they're going to find somebody else who's more qualified or a better fit. And then I got three offers. In fact, I, I <laughs> the funny thing is, I because I got so many offers all around the same time, I had to do these interviews like back to back. I drove down to Pittsburgh to do an interview and then I had to drive out wet uh, or I drive east, you know, through the mountains of Pennsylvania to a place that's about 45 minutes outside of Pittsburgh. And mm-hmm. there was a snowstorm that day. So I had an interview and I had to drive through the snow <laughs> to get to the other interview. And I had like four hours to get there or something. No, uh-huh. no like an hour to get there through the snow. So it was right. very, so, it was so a, here you are in here you are in <laughs> Pittsburgh. You have to drive out of Pittsburgh and there's a snowstorm. Right. And the movie that you look back to was Groundhog Day. That's right. Where he's leaving <laughs> Pittsburgh and there's a snowstorm. <laughs> he's trying to so get God back is to bringing Pittsburgh. Up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
yes. it comes full circle. Yeah, exactly. Yes. God is using the fifth <laughs> orb. Yeah. I don't want you to take that other job. I want you to take the one yeah. from Pittsburgh. Yeah. yeah. And then and then I my son's birthday was right after that. So I had to drive from that second interview to back to Buffalo. And then it was like <laughs> mm-hmm. three feet of snow. It was like a huge snowstorm. And that uh-huh. wasn't gonna stop me. I wasn't gonna miss uh-huh. my son's birthday. So I was yeah. literally putting my life in my hands driving up <laughs> driving up uh yeah. seventy nine all the way to Buffalo yeah. in three feet of snow. <laughs> so so you so you get the job in Pittsburgh and then you start working there and and then you go back to your research on joy, right? Right. Right. And so how did that change now that you are in a different place spiritually? How did that change your research in joy and and what came of it after that point? Well, it's I think then I understood the transcendent in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I, you know, here's the interesting thing. I started, you know, when I came down to Point Park, I, I started teaching a course called Happiness, Well-Being, and Human Strength. So that was a mm-hmm. class where I taught, you know, well-being and happiness, drawing upon, you know, available research that was done as well as my own. But what I began to see in the research, not just in my own research, but in across the board, is that religion and spirituality was very consistently correlated with positive outcomes, mental Mm -hmm. health, better mental Mm -hmm. health, uh, and, uh, higher levels of happiness, no matter how you define that. So like, even if you met, even if you talked about subjective well-being, which is more hedonic, even that Mm -hmm. they were higher there, you know? So ironically, even though spirituality usually teaches, you know, not looking for immediate gratification and cultivating virtue, you know, uh, self-restraint, you know, uh, that actually people who are spiritual or identify with a particular religion Mm. actually experience more pleasure in life, Mm -hmm. (laughs) ironically. Uh, You know, so it was like they weren't looking for that, but this sort of, it was like a byproduct of living a virtuous life. So I saw that. Yeah. And that was, it's very interesting. And it's it's funny because I would teach it and because that's I, I teach the science. I was literally following what the science says, reporting yeah. it. And it's it's funny because you get reactions from people. You know, a lot of a lot of the students, you know, like would comment at the end of the semester that they were surprised they didn't like that part of the course, you know, that I said religion hmm. is good for you, you know. And I would hmm. just say, Well, I'm just, <laughs> just I'm just I'm reporting just, I'm just what the evidence what says. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And well, uh, you know, so, but there is there is uh there there is the, the religion in some cases can be negative and mm-hmm. and in particular when people have an understanding of god as a non-loving sort of punishing type of god a god without mm-hmm. mercy you might say mm-hmm. is is not a is not a good god uh to have in your belief system if you want to be happy and virtuous mm-hmm. but i also started to shift in how i understood happiness in general what the good life means and yeah. that was that came from pe- studying people like my friend Paul Wong, a Canadian psychologist. He identifies four different ways of understanding the good life. So there's the hedonic approach, which is looking for looking for pleasure, mm-hmm. associated with things like materialism and consumerism. Uh, there's uh, what he calls prudential uh, happiness, which is really about being engaged. But there's not a moral or ethical component to that. You could be a very engaged sociopath, you know, and that would be, you know, prudential happiness. 
engagement alone doesn't get at the moral or ethical dimension. Where you start to get into the moral and ethical is within the eudaimonic approach to happiness, which is where happiness is defined in terms of a life of excellence, living a life of virtue. And then Paul adds a fourth dimension, which is really important to understanding my research, I think. He calls it the chironic dimension, which is about joy or happiness more as a spiritual fruit, something that comes out of the spiritual life, a feeling of awe, openness to the mystery of the transcendent, but also gratitude, a, feel, a feeling of fortunateness about one situation. So what I began to realize is looking back on my research on joy and some of the new research I was doing on trait joy or disposition, dis, dispositional joy is it it had all of that. It brought all of those aspects of happiness together. It was people who are more who, who were higher in the virtues tended to experience more joy. Yeah. Uh, and when they had experience of joy, it had this chironic quality yeah. it was all about feeling well, fortunate yeah. uh, a, a sense of awe an openness to the mystery yeah. all those things yeah yeah well that is a that is a good teaser for our next next episode uh good our next episode we're going to be diving more into your research on joy and, and really getting in depth into it uh i i think it's such an, an interesting um an interesting area of, of research in psychology because as you said it, it does bridge between the between the physical side of our 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 psychology to our transcendent spiritual side, um, but to wrap up this conversation, I have a very important question for you. Mm -hmm. um, besides psychology, what are some things you nerd out over? What are <laughs> some that you really get into to studying? I, I'm very interdisciplinary. I mean, I I love to study lots of different geek out on lots of different stuff, uh, physics, mm -hmm. history, literature, um, biology, you know, but I would say lately, my latest thing that I, that I have been fascinated by is, mm -hmm. uh, Maxwell's demon is <laughs> mm. it's a, it's a theory or actually a, a thought experiment, a Gedanken in physics. It goes back to 1867. One of the things I find that's kind of interesting about it, because this is really the beginning of a period of time when, say, in psychiatry in the hospitals, there you have a very anti-clerical movement where they're mm. disparaging the church and mm -hmm. uh, trying to rid uh, psychiatry of any notion of the supernatural. And you tend toward mm -hmm. this very biologically reductive understanding of psychological mm -hmm. problems. That that ultimately leads to eugenics. Uh, mm -hmm. th th those ideas in, in the late 19th century and uh, but this sort of brain sort of medical model brain-based medical model psychiatry really begins to emerge at that time mm -hmm. uh, and part of the part of the rhetoric around that is that you know they're dispelling these old superstitious ideas like you know angels and demons and things like that mm -hmm. you know and exorcisms and then at the very the very year that Magnin, who's the big, big major materialist, publishes his first work uh, in physics, they come. It's this, this guy comes up with a thought experiment that involves a demon and involves the most hardest <laughs> of sciences in physics. Uh huh. You know, and the the idea is that you know the it's it's a it's a thought experiment to try to think through the problem of entropy in thermodynamics. So mm -hmm. he he says that uh, you know there's. Imagine when you have a third th thermodynamic system that it's very almost so unlikely that it's nearly impossible that, you know, 
the molecules would all drift to one side, say of a cube. Mm -hmm. You know, they they tend mm -hmm. to distribute uh, themselves within the cube in a sort of more chaotic or random or unpredictable ways as entropy mm -hmm. increases. So he imagines if you had a door between the two parts of a cube, and there was a demon who could open the door whenever a, you know a heat molecule you know was coming through and open it up, mm -hmm. you could transform a, a system that's an entropy back into an ordered system that can generate heat. Mm -hmm. And that's called Maxwell's demon. And it turns out that problem's never been solved. And it's still hmm. something that people are talking about. And the in fact, it's now people are very interested in it because they we've sort of changed our understanding of what entropy is. It people are starting to think about entropy as really about information, about the predictability of a system. Mm -hmm. When you know, that that entropy is really about uh inability to make predictions and so it has to do with information mm -hmm. and uh so anyway long story short uh there's now an interest in maxwell's demon because we can use that concept to sort of slow down the process of entropy by creating mm. you know technology that acts like maxwell's demon mm -hmm. in order to make smaller and smaller information processing devices that generate less heat so uh -huh. there's, there's actually a technological <laughs> application for it. <laughs> and it's, isn't it ironic that the demon is yeah. also associated with heat and generating yes. heat? <laughs> so I get yeah. a kick out of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, well, Brent, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me today. And uh, yeah, be sure to come back uh, next week, everyone. We're going to be talking with Brent Moore about his research into joy and, uh, and looking at how that bridges this, this world of the, uh, the mental and the psychological with uh, the spiritual and transcendent. And I, I'm looking forward to that conversation. I think it's going to be really interesting. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to talking more with Brent next week, and I'm looking forward to seeing you as well next week. So join us again next week. Thanks. God bless. Shut down.